Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalog of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group, networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen Merkel and I'm the host of the show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders themselves and experts in the field of self-leadership, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past your fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Legendary Leaders podcast. Very happy to have you all back here to listen to the show today with a very fantastic guest, the funny finance guy called Robert Bendetti. And he's the chief financial officer with a CPA, MBA, and a good sense of humor who's going to join us here today. He has definitely more than one role in his life, and he's the best person to share all the things he's actually doing. But most importantly, he's giving us some real insights into his day to day, why he is passionate about accounting and the world of finance, how he builds his team, how he shows up as a leader, what leadership means to him and what it doesn't mean to him, what truly makes him grinch when he reads articles and comments on social media in particular about leadership. We talk about excellence versus perfection and how he makes sure that team and his stakeholders strive for excellence too. On top of that, we get a really beautiful insights into the personal world of Robert, what makes him feel passionate, what drives his motivation, where does he get it from, how is he making sure he's continuously learning as well and developing himself. He's also going to share with us his very personal story. And for all of you who have listened to the show before or even have been loyal fans of the Legendary Leaders podcast, you know that we are always looking for guests who are humble, vulnerable, and open to share their story of success, but also perhaps of failure, of change. And Robert has gone through some significant change that had an incredibly positive impact on his health and well-being and obviously on the people and communities around him. So if you want to learn more about a different side to finance guys, um, leadership in the corporate world, then this is today the show to listen to. And if you want to have a bit of a laugh, well, then definitely stay on uh, and have a listen. So enjoy this episode. And I can't wait to hear your feedback as always speak to you again in a moment. Hello, hello, and welcome to Robert Benetti. Nice to have you here on the show. My pleasure. Glad to be on the show with you. Love your podcast. Look forward to our conversation. Well, thank you so much. What a welcome. I appreciate it. Hey, look, uh, we had a bit of a chat before we hit the record button. And what I said to you is I'm so delighted to have you on this show for many reasons. But one of them is 
that you can give us today a little bit of an insight into the role of a CFO, the ups and downs of leadership from an internal organizational perspective, but also from a person who also looks, you know, beyond your own role, who looks to the outside world, who is inspired, but also who challenges the external world outside of the organization you work in, which I find super, super interesting. So really curious about what you have to share with us here today. And you already made me really laugh. I, I think the two encounters we had so far, I've laughed more than sometimes in just, you know, dinner conversation that I have in my personal life here. You really made me laugh a lot. And one of the stories you just shared me was about a LinkedIn post you saw the other day. Yeah, there is a meme out there about CFOs and it reads something like the CEO says to the CFO, we need to train our people. And then the CFO says, but what if we train them and they leave? And then the CEO says, but what if we train them and we don't train them and they stay? And I, am, I assume it, it is some parable about how you need to invest in your people. But it's also, why is the CFO always got to be the bad guy? We're not bad guys. I've never heard a CFO say that. <laughs> that makes no sense. LinkedIn it's got LinkedIn has to know that I stop scrolling on my phone when I see that because it shows it to me all the time. The algorithm oh. is trying to make me mad, Kathleen, and it is working. And I have to stop. What I have to do is trick the algorithm and stop looking at it and stop uh, leaving a comment that I don't know any CFOs like that. But yes, I definitely, definitely dislike that stereotype. CFOs are not terrible people. We're actually super cool, super fun people. And I'm just one of those folks. You are just one of those folks. You say so humbly, I would even say. Um, before we delve a little bit deeper into who you are and all the things you do in your day to day, just out of curiosity, did you get any comment back on that post? No, they never did. They never do. I never get a comment back. And uh, so, no, I wanted to engage yeah. with the person. I wanted to see what they had to say, like, oh, no, you know, Bob is a terrible CFO and he denied my training. So, no, no, nope, nobody ever responds. Oh, I love it when people challenge and actually make you think just with a really quick comment even. But indeed, I have to admit, I worked with quite a few CFOs and, and uh, leaders in finance in the past. And I have experienced hardly any kind of stereotypical, whatever that means, let's chat about it, finance people. They are all really good fun and um, easygoing, can have a good laugh with. So the typical grumpy, introverted um, kind of finance person never really encountered it. So I'm, I'm glad this is just a strange stereotype that's out there. However, it is still a stereotype and I hear about it quite frequently. So, so what is it you hear about it? What is it you notice? How much is it perhaps challenging you or getting in the way? Well, I think it's based on a grain of truth, which is oftentimes the CFOs find themselves as the adult in the room and they have to ask a lot of questions or they have to maybe bring reality into focus that we're in a very tough season financially, so we can't afford everything and we're going to have to make choices and priorities. Or we might be in a season where we have plenty of money but we have very limited time. All of our staff are dedicated to solving some solution for the customer. So, hey, 
I don't know if anybody looked, but the schedule won't allow for us to make an investment of X, Y, Z because we just have a scheduling variance. I guess that grain of salt means we say no sometimes. And then, oh, you're the chief no officer. And then you're a meme on LinkedIn making Robert Bendetti mad. That, that's, I think, the thread. Goodness me. So you are the messenger of the bad news from time to time that perhaps saves the business. And, oh, and uh, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I think it's true, but I'm not sure if it is actually <laughs> really, really true. It gives a reality check. Let's say that. Yeah, just or a counter opinion. Um, I think CFOs are independent thinkers and are willing to share a, 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 a contrarian view sometimes, mm -hmm. not to be difficult or be, to be a pain, but just have we thought about X, Y, and Z? Let's have a conversation about that. We discuss it. All right, cool. We've all thought. We've all had input. Okay, let's go execute. I come back to that point in a short moment. So I park it here for a moment, but I don't want to forget to talk a little bit more about all those roles that I've just mentioned. Because first of all, when I read about you and I saw all the bullet points of what you are doing in your day-to-day, -day, didn't even mention that you are a dad, for example, that you are an eager runner. That wasn't in it at this point of time. I was like, goodness me, how does he do it? So tell the audience a little bit more about yourself and what indeed you do on a day-to-day -day basis. I'll start by saying I'm a real account. There are CFOs who advanced in their career via operations. And so they're just currently the chief financial officer, but their background isn't in accounting. I am an accountant. I love accounting. So I took a, an accounting class in college and my eyes just sort of lit up. I was like, I love this. This is fantastic. Everyone else hated it. And I was like, really? Like, and they were like, this is so dumb. There's so many rules. And I don't know why we have to do this. And I was just like, I don't care why we have to do it. <laughs> this is just really clearly laid out. It's you just do something all the time. You just have to be organized and understand basic math. Boom. Now, I can get paid for this. Fantastic. So I, I got a degree in an uh, undergraduate degree in accounting and finance. I loved it. I got an MBA. And then I wanted to sit for the CPA exam. So I went back again and got another master's degree, a master's degree in accounting. So I could sit for the CPA exam. So I'm a, a certified public accountant in uh, the UK uh, or other places that might be considered like a chartered accountant. Same thing. I'm a bean counter, a bean counter's bean counter, and I love it. I don't really get to do a lot of accounting anymore. I love collections and payables and credit card reconciliations and journal entries. I don't do that anymore. That's, that's not my job. My job mainly is just to equip the managers who do things with all the team and the talent and the processes and the technology that they need to do their job. And when they encounter an exception or a roadblock, I try to uh, help them get rid of that roadblock. Or if they're having trouble between two decisions, uh, just help them walk through the process of making a decision. And that, that's basically what I do now. And I support accounting and finance, purchasing contracts, IT, and uh, in some companies, it's been human resources. Uh, at this company, I don't support human resources. There's a leader just over HR, which is great because that's super tough uh, group. That's a really hard. I, I pray for all HR leaders who are on the call today. Whew, that is a. That might be a few. Job. Oh that my gosh. Oh gosh. Wow. Let's have a moment of silence for them. Okay. And then at times at this company, that's been really cool just because of transitions uh, of leadership. At times, the marketing team and the sales operations team has reported to me. And I loved that. That was only for short bits of time. And I begged the CEO to let that happen when we were in the middle of the leader transitions. And then he'd like clawed away from me. 
uh, and, and move it over to sales when we'd have a new sales leader. But I like the diversity of what the modern CFO is, is what I'm trying to get the point across. It's quite exciting, the diversity of activities that I get to be involved in. So the diversity of activities within your role as a CFO. However, if we look outside of the CFO role, there are more things you are doing. Yeah, I like uh, to help the community and sort of be out there in the community. I'm a husband and I'm a father of two awesome kids. And so love to do sort of the civic community, religious stuff with them and all their sports activities. And then me personally, I like to volunteer in organizations, uh, whether they're industry associations or their accounting and CFO kind of associations. And then as just Robert Bendetti, the person, I like physical activity. And so I found that for sh in short distances, I'm slow and I, I finish whatever I'm doing in the back of the pack. But the longer I go, then the more competitive I get. Everybody kind of slows down, but I'm already slow. So I just stay the same amount of slow. And if we, if I started doing half marathons, marathons, and now ultra marathons, now I'm kind of in the middle of the pack because everybody's slowed down to my pace. So I'm a middle of the pack, ultra marathoner kind of person right now. Well, that could be a nice metaphor for organizations as well. Is there anything you would translate into your business life? Well, just personally, I am kind of a grinder. I've never been the smartest or the fastest, but I just will not quit. And I will put in a lot more time than the average person to complete something. And so professionally, that is how I've just sort of got along in school or I've gotten along at work. Uh, I might not be able to do something as fast uh, or pick up a, something as quickly as you, Kathleen, in class, but I would just put huh. more hours in and studying and like eventually it would click and I could get a decent grade and the same thing at work. You know, I just sort of grind away and I can get it done. Well, then that's what ultra marathoning is. It has nothing to do with the physical. I mean, it's just moving. You're just falling forward, but it's the mental part of it. After a while, it's just your mind over your body making you move when you don't really want to. And you can make yourself do something forever. First of all, I was neither. Never someone who picked everything up really quickly, nor was I up to investing even more time. That just happened at some point in my business life um, where it evolved, weirdly enough. So it changed. No interest in school or anything like that. So I was a very average student, which my parents loved in particular. Um, but you know what? When I'm listening to you, I get the sense of, ease and calm and kind of content, which I love. It's fantastic. And I just know you superficially so far, right? It's not that we are best mates and we have had weekly conversations. Um, so it's, it's an initial perception. Uh, so well, let's you... pause. Okay. So I got to pause you, Kathleen. That is so exact opposite. That is so <laughs> not true. I cannot claim that. And if anyone who knows me were to listen to this, they'd be like, Robert, it is embarrassing. You didn't stop her. I'm not calm. I'm a, I'm a really fired up person. I just like, uh, I take things really, uh, like I just think everything's really important and I take things really seriously and I get very, very target focused on things. I would actually say I'm kind of an intense person, but yeah. I am fun. Like I'm intensely fun too. I want to have a good time, but making money is a good time to me. Uh, working really hard is fun to me. Uh, running is fun. Being like present in my kid's life 
and present in my in my wife and being a co-parent kinda is really important to me. I am appearing calm and trying to impress you, I think, but th- none of that's true. I'm actually not super calm. So I just wanted to be honest. Thank you. And I'm pretty sure it's going to come out more and more as, uh, the longer we're going to talk. So let's see that real you. <laughs> the, the calmness or the content refer it really to how you described your involvement in your kid's life, for example, in your, in your running. I give you, give you a different example. The other week I was talking to two people who experienced a similar thing, right? High responsibility um, job, loads of decision-making, a lot of hours to invest in the day-to-day work, family and whatnot. But it all seemed to be really demanding, very challenging. And I'm saying this really from a non-judgmental perspective because people are different and we can never really put ourselves fully into people's shoes and how they are perceiving it. But it felt like, oh my God, the roles I'm playing in my life, it's just getting too much and I don't know how to deal with it. And it felt very overwhelming. And the question that built up in my mind when you were describing your life was like, how is he doing it? You know, how does he keep so content and positive? And I think you started explaining it with regards to fun, but is there anything else you would add to it? Yeah, I'd say two parts that I think are really helpful. So the practical one and then sort of a higher level. So a real practical thing is that I don't watch any television. I don't have any hobbies. I'm not on social media. I don't really have any distractions. So when people say, oh, they, the average person spends X amount of time watching TV or on their phone or they go play golf or they have some fun like hobby, like I have none of that. I don't, I don't watch any television. I don't read any books. Uh, I listen to podcasts and I listen to books on tape while I'm running. But if I can't do it while I'm running or working out or surfing, like it's just not going to happen. I multitask for sure, but I just don't have any distractions that most people do. And, and it, it's a huge sinkhole. People do not realize how often they're on their phone on YouTube or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever is out there. You could spend 30 minutes, an hour, two hours a day, just sucked in to your favorite TV show or some, some random internet person who doesn't know you, but your kids, they do, you know, you, and you're not around them or your wife is, is around and she needs some help and you're not helping her, or you got a bunch of work you didn't get done because you're sitting around watching television. So all these things that you want to do, you need to write them down and then you need to make time on your calendar, uh, time for your kids, time for your spouse, time for your work. Oh, I don't have any time. Well, sleep faster. All right. You do have time, get it done. And there's a, another thing is the calmness, may, maybe if it comes from anything, it's maybe it's just an awareness that the little struggles, the little workload I have is nothing compared to other people that I know. I, I remember being in college and I was like so impressed that I got an A minus on some accounting test. And I was like complaining, like, oh, I got this done in spite of having, you know, work part time my way through college and my my co-lab partner was like, oh, that's really good. And I was like, how'd you do? She was like, oh, I got a 98. Uh. I was like, dang, that's amazing. She's like, oh yeah, you know, uh, my kids this and my second job that and I had some car trouble done. And I still got here because my mom had to come pick me. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm complaining about my time and, be, and this person has real struggle. And I, 
if you involve yourself in the community, if you involve yourself in industry associations or associations associated with your job or a really religious organization, you start to really understand what real trouble people have, what real scheduling conflicts people have and struggles people have to get things accomplished. Or if you travel, you become aware of how tough it is and in everywhere else in the world, probably than who's listening to this podcast. And so I just don't stress out about work stuff or life stuff because not nobody's trying to kill me. I do not work in a coal mine. I just do not have a difficult life. So I just feel really happy and really blessed. You know, my, I get to talk to you today and we're having fun. We're doing things that just would have just seemed like such leisure and impossible, an impossible thing to our grandparents or our great grandparents. Yeah. They would have never, never done something like this. So oh, I just, so I, those are my thoughts. So, so true. I mean, still, when I talk to my parents about podcasting, you're like, what, <laughs> what are you doing? And you do that in the middle of your work day. Yeah. I don't have a traditional work day anymore. So <laughs> sometimes I've changed slightly. You are so right though. Absolutely. And I, I love that you mentioned the traveling again as well and opening our eyes and, and perspectives for what's going on in the world, you know, and appreciating where we are and what we have and the freedom we have in the workday and so on. Coming back for a moment, or maybe a longer moment, to your current role as a, a chief financial officer, you mentioned something interesting before, and that was that for a period of time, we were looking after marketing and was it sales? Sales operations. So sales it was operation. like sales support, um, not the business development and growth leaders themselves, but sales support. So in my restricted perspective, perhaps, um, it wouldn't always have been the first choice of a CEO to say, hey, CFO, you do that. Might have been, right? Depends always on the personality of the leader. But I have never experienced it. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist out there frequently, right? But I'm curious to hear what made him choose you. I begged. You must have been talking <laughs> to him, Kathleen, because he was like, mm, I don't think so, Robert. You're just so very busy. I was like, come on, please, 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 please. So it was just begging and desperation, I think, because it is really unusual, but I just really thought that would be cool. And I just think yeah. it's really fun what marketing and sales operations does. Sales operations to me is like business development support, sales and growth leader support. And I think a lot of what that is, is you need to be organized and responsive to your internal customers and support them in the pursuit of new business. And I thought, well, that that's totally in my, I'm super organized and there's a super awesome leader in that area. I just have to help them. And there's nobody who can get some financial dollars approved faster than me. So I'm perfect. So that was an easier sell and they were more desperate. And uh, the marketing took a little longer. It took a couple of months of begging, like real near harassment really on my part is I just really wanted to be involved in learn from marketing. I think it's not something I really trained in. It's not something I'm natural with. And I just thought it would be so cool to support that organization. That meant that I got to have monthly huddles with the leader of the marketing team. And so she would be, I was like, Hey, what challenges do you have? How are things going? She'd boom, 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 go through them. I write them down. Is there anything I can do for you? I write that down. And then I go, okay, I got a couple ideas for you. And I picture some like cool marketing ideas uh, for positioning, promotion, branding, advertising. And uh, some of them were brilliant that she didn't write down. Some of them were terrible that she didn't write down, but she entertained me 
<laughs> and uh, I really loved our conversations. It was like the best year of my season at my current company. I loved it. So what did you take away from that experience? Because in all honesty, I think there should be more cross-departmental um, learning and exposure. Uh, I personally think it can help on so many levels. But before I keep waffling on, let's hear from you. What did you take away? Yeah, I learned uh, some things that are popping into mind. One is I learned how unbelievably expensive some marketing channels are. I mean, like nonsensically, ex like everything she said she was going to do, I'd go, oh, and what? what's the investment? And there was always an extra couple zeros. I mean, <laughs> it was just like, that's, and she'd say something. I go, okay, that's got to be like 1500 bucks. And then she'd say, oh, it's 15,000. And I'm just like, why is there always at least one, like one zero or two zeros extra? This is so crazy. Like, so that was one learning is that everything marketing related, advertising, positioning, promotion, things are just way more expensive than I thought. The second is I, I found that there is not a direct as direct correlation or strength of leads that come from a lot of channels. Um, it's very, very hard to connect promotion, positioning, even advertising to any revenue growth. That's very, very hard. Sales and marketing people try to say that you can, and there is some of it that you can, but it is very difficult for any firm, certainly a mid-market firm like mine, to directly connect investments in marketing to revenue growth. I think it's important. It's very critical, but I always thought the connection could be more direct, or if I got involved, I could help them make the connection between all their efforts and the money we were spending as an investment, translating to revenue or revenue growth or retaining revenue or growing in a, mar in a particular market or industry or a service. And that is, that is in my limited experience, it's much harder or, or maybe impossible. Advertising is a little easier. If you advertise a specific service or class, and then there is a click-through, to sign up, you can you can connect that, and so I I move advertising a little bit to the side. Uh, that you can have a much greater connection to uh, revenue, but the other sides of what a marketing professional does, um, it's a little harder. And then the third thing that came out of it is I think I established a really great relationship with the marketing leader personally and professionally, which I think is really helpful when you're in marketing and you spend a lot of money and everything's really expensive. It's good that the CFOs like really likes you and it really values the things that you do and knows that it's really important and it's important to the growth. Like I, I'm just reporting on stuff. I don't do anything. I don't sell anything. I don't make anything. No customer ever sees me instead unless something's really bad. And so it's important, I think, for marketing and and uh, finance to be connected. And we are. Oh, totally. And uh, build trust as well amongst the people. I loved being able to approach the finance department as a HR person to have those open conversations, really transparent, open conversations, or ask for better understanding uh, on a mutual basis and create solutions together. It felt almost like this rock fell off your chest. You felt supportive, you know, it or supported as well. And it was far more fun to work together. So from a very personal perspective, I'm completely with you. Trust played a huge role for me. Yeah, and it, it was, I learned a lot also from the other things that I do outside my job, organizations that I volunteer at, marketing is important. Marketing those organizations so those organizations can grow and serve the community. 
So I, 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 things that I learned from this marketing leader, I transferred over to that, or I am my own personal brand or I should be. And so the things that I learned from her, I transferred to me like, oh, I need to be a thought leader and maybe not only listen to podcasts, but maybe I could be on them. Mm -hmm. And that would be a way to improve my own personal brand. And that would be a win for the company, but it would also be a, a win for Robert Bendetti. So I learned things, probably more. I probably got a lot more out of that season than I gave. You uh, mentioned right at the start that while you are very passionate about accounting and getting into the nitty gritty, that's not necessarily what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. The people are your main job. And I get the sense also a passion, something you really enjoy doing. Tell us a little bit more about how you focus on the people on a day-to-day -day basis. How do you make your management team successful and help them grow? Well, it's a work in progress. I don't want to act like I got all the answers or I'm perfect, but I do think that as in a professional service firm, which is what life cycle engineering is, that on the P&L is what we call the in income statement, the P&L, that people are the P in the P&L, and that I'm not creating revenue or supporting the customer, but everyone else is. And so if I can make everybody's job a little easier, or I can get everybody the tools necessary to do their job, help with investments and in software training so that the things that they're doing are more efficient, well, then they're going to serve the customer more, which is going to grow our revenue, which is going to create more profit, which is what I want to see. Yeah. And so that's kind of a, a new mantra. I think that for myself, I stole from somebody and I can't remember where I got this. So if you're listening, I apologize, but people are the P and the P and L. So when it comes to leadership, right, there are loads of theories, loads of opinions out there, what good leadership looks like, what it should be like, what people should be doing and so on and so forth. Before we hear from you what your view on leadership is, let, let, let us hear about what makes you really grinch when it comes to leadership. What are perhaps phrases or mantras out there where you say, oh my God, I can't hear this anymore? Well, I'm going to flip back to LinkedIn. I don't know why I'm on LinkedIn because it's clearly a frustrating thing to me. But another, well, meme that I see on LinkedIn is about leaders and managers. And there's this glorious person who's a leader. And then there's a list of attributes under them that are just amazing things that I'll never be. And then there's the manager. It's always a picture of a poorly dressed person who looks terrible. And then there's a list of a bunch of stuff, you know, that you, I guess you shouldn't be doing. And it's like, we all want leaders instead of managers, be a leader. And my pause is that who really needs this perfect leader? Do we really? Does anybody at my company really need a perfect leader? Like, why, why is that so important? Leadership is absolutely critical, yes. And a lot of problems at companies can be boiled down to poor leadership. Mm -hmm. But I, I think there is a, there's a spectrum and you can go too far. And I think that sometimes people go too far. They either want to be this perfect leader and they're not, so they feel bad, or they're waiting or looking for this perfect leader to lead them to the promised land. And I just think you might be looking forever. I don't think anybody is or needs to be the, this perfect, amazing leader. I like, you don't need to be a perfect amazing parent. You just need to do the best you possibly can when you make a mistake, admit it, and just work on it and improve. I think the same thing with being a manager or a leader. 
is I can't be that perfect leader. I'm not sure. I don't need a perfect leader. I just need a pretty good leader who's trying, who gets out of my way. And so I just feel like we put a lot of pressure on people. And I just also think that there's a lot maybe of ego of somebody who thinks they are this, they work at a company that's just going really, really well, and they are in a leadership position. So they're like, Ooh, I'm the perfect leader. I'm amazing. I'm not a manager. I'm a leader. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to get myself on a meme and stick it on LinkedIn. I just think that's ridiculous. What is perfect leadership? I think that we, as uh, my job is to equip people with the processes and the talent and the technology to do their job. I try to hire the best people I possibly can. And then most of the time, I just kind of get out of their way until there is an exception. And when they hit that roadblock or exception, if they need me to knock the roadblock down, or if they need me to, hey, I got this exception. I'm not really sure how to handle this. Should I do this or this? I usually say, what do you think we should do? And then they go, I think we should do such and such. And as long as it's a 60% good answer, I'm going to go with what they say because they thought of it. They think it's a good idea and they'll execute that 60% really to the best of their ability because they're going to be like, oh gosh, we're going with my idea. I wasn't expecting that. This better work. Or the other thing you could do is some people will be like, oh, that's 60% idea. I don't know about that. And they'll give them like their own idea. And now the person is like, "Mm, oh, I got to do what Robert says. And they don't really like my idea. And then they're kind of half doing it or working against me and it's not going to work out. So as long as it's 60% and above, I just go with their idea. If it's like 40, if they give me like two ideas and both of them are pretty bad, illegal, dangerous, terrible, then I'm like, Hey, what was your third idea? And then usually the third idea is kind of pretty good. And like, we're okay, we're now we're getting creative. I like where we're going with this or, Hey, let's, this is another one. If that idea is also bad, I go, you know, this is so important. I think we should chew on this one. Let's chew on this one over the night. (laughs) I'm going to put something on your calendar for tomorrow. And I bet one of us is going to have a brilliant idea, emphasis you, and let's circle back tomorrow. And then we get back together and tomorrow she has an awesome idea and we just go with that. Well, I was just wondering how creative can you be in accounting? I get, uh, I, I bet sometimes you might have to be creative. Oh, I think creative in accounting can be illegal. So I don't know if I'm creative, but I'm trying to be more flexible as I get older and I do more and I'm more aware. I'm, the new Robert is more flexible than the old Robert. Oh, now we are getting into a very interesting territory. Who is the new Robert? Who is the old Robert? Well, we're all evolving, right? We're mm-hmm. all trying to be better. We're all trying to improve or change, you know, not just change as a company, but like, but I think change really boils down to a person. And there's a there's a change management philosophy called ProSci. And it talks about that, the people side of change. And it's really at the individual level. If there's more than two people at your company, if it's just you and a bunch of bots, you don't have to worry about this. But if there's more than two people at your company, then change boils down to people. Or if you as a person want to improve in your life, and I do, I want to be better. I'm in the pursuit of excellence, not perfection. That's impossible, but I am in the pursuit of excellent, relentlessly trying to improve that I hope future Robert is better than present Robert and present Robert's way better than past Robert. Like past Robert was an idiot, annoying, don't even like that guy. And future Robert's rooting for present Robert to get his act together. So that's what I'm, I'm working on. And I'm working on it as an individual. 
helping try to change my own habits. And when I engage at like sort of a corporate level, uh, when I seek to change or improve, I try to think of the people side of change. So thinking back of old Robert, Robert, who you said was really annoying, don't even like that guy. What, what happened there exactly? How did this transformation, this evolution take place? How did you change habits, for example? Part of it is just realizing some things don't work. You get a little bit of experience. The more experience you have, you gain, uh, you're not just smart, but you become wise. And I think those things are different. And I'm, the more I know, it's, it's like the dumber I've gotten. It's, I, I remember thinking I was the smartest person in the room and that the only way we're going to get out of this problem is if I do something or say something. And I, the older I get, I realize, oh, wow, I'm not, I'm not the smartest person in the room. And there's a lot of people with really great ideas. And maybe if I talked less, we'd get more of those ideas. Not only would we get more of those ideas, if other people talked or they shared, then they'd feel that they had some say in the process and in the decision, they'd have some passion around execution. And so that, that's been a big area is, is just, if I can talk a little bit less, so other people talk more, they'll be more engaged. And that the after meeting activities are way more important than the meeting activities. Because somebody's got to go off and do this. And so those people need to have been involved in the process. It's just not something that clicked. It sounds so obvious now, but when I was 25 or 30 years old, it's just, uh, I thought, well, the idea is what's important and people will just do whatever they're told. And the truth is that that's a, that's a bad idea for two reasons. One is that you might tell them something really stupid because you didn't ask enough questions or involve enough people. You need to involve more people and seek more input. And then the second is people don't just go off and do what they're told. People will purposely try to sabotage your idea or they just don't work very hard if they weren't involved in the process. So involve them in the process, seek their input, ask their input. When you're trying to do, uh, do something new or different, don't come down from your executive office with your decision written in a stone and act like you're delivering the tablet of truth to the little people. And that way people are more engaged. And then you can have a pretty good idea that's executed amazingly, just violent execution if people are really passionate about it as a group. So uh, kind of rambling, but that's that's been a big improvement. And what's funny about what I just did is I just talked a lot sharing how I'm trying to talk less. So I find that pretty funny. And not fully answering my question. If I may add that, okay, Um, because one of the secrets that you mentioned was H, right? Because the question was, how did this transformation, this evolution happen? Mm -hmm. H, yes. What I could hear as well was more awareness, really noticing Mm -hmm. what's going on. What else? Some people have like this huge breakthrough, this realization in their life through a crisis. Other people have a coach on their side. Um, What else was it for you, if there was anything? I think that that can be really important. And over time, I've had uh, I constant education and training. So early on in the career, it was just sort of for my, my task. It was for accounting and master's degrees and certifications and stuff like that. But I do, I think continuing education is really important. So I think books and authors have played a big, uh, have been a, a really great resource. 
and had a big impact. I think that I, I go to conferences and I get a lot of uh, reinforcement. I get a lot of new knowledge and ideas from these conferences. I think podcasts have been really helpful since I have to, I mean, I have to run a lot and to train for a marathon, you have to run marathons. So I'm not just staring at trees. I'm listening to something. So last weekend I ran 18 miles and I listened to like three, three hours of podcasts. And it was on things like being a better team member and on listening more and having a more inclusive mindset. And I think those that's helpful. That's like, uh, that's good to he- hear that. I never had any, uh, I've had some coaches, which I think are great, uh, really helpful. I think that's, uh, it's, that's critical, but I've never had like a, like a crash where I had to then rise up like a Phoenix and I had this new awakening and I was, uh, uh, turned into a butterfly or something like that. It's been much slower of a grind and I'm still on this journey, right? This is not the end. This is not the final form. Okay. This is, I'm kind of in the middle, I'm 47. And so I'm, I'm going to say, you know, I've got maybe 40 more years, uh, in the game. And so I'm, I'm halfway there still a work in progress. Wow, that's quite an ambition. I actually know one person who is now approaching his 80s and he still loves his work so much. Uh, He can't travel anymore as much as he did, but he just loves it. And in one of my previous episodes, I was talking to someone about work-life balance. I I don't like this expression at all. There's one life full stop. How you build it is up to you, right? So like you said, I love to work. I love accounting. If that gives you fun and passion, you don't look at your watch, do you? How many hours have I now spent on it? You would look at it if you say, okay, I forgot to prioritize my children, perhaps, right? But it's all about your energy, your feeling, how you're in it, how you're in flow. And age, therefore, for me, is also just a number. So coming back to what you just said, love the ambition, basically. Yeah, and I agree. I, I'd like to pull the string on that. I think that it's, I also, this work-life balance is ridiculous. I don't, I don't like that. I like work-life integration. So I, I only take jobs that allow my wife and kids to be around, that they know I'm going to be around. And I might leave for something, but I'm coming back. Or I might go, I got to coach something, but I'm going to come back. Uh, If I got to travel, I'll travel anywhere for any amount of time and I can leave tomorrow, but my family's coming with me. So uh, if that's not like, cool, if you, if this, your company, like people, like wives and, and um, uh, husbands and uh, kids don't come around, well, then I'm not your guy. Also, my wife is fully supportive. She she totally understands. She's like, rah, rah, what are you doing home? You should be working a little bit more. Come on. No, she, she will call me at like eight. She's like, are you ever coming home? So I, I, she, she is a super A type personality. She is, I married the female version of me. She absolutely leads every organization she's a member of and she's constantly running around she's like way, way more intense than me. So I believe in work-life integration. I married somebody and my family understands what I'm about. And then my, I will only take jobs that allow integration. What are other criteria that you consider when choosing an organization to work for? Well, I like companies that are 
growing really quickly or dealing with some sort of transition. Mm -hmm. So some sort of issue. I'm, I don't do really well in the maintain the, we have a, this company or division is in a steady state cash flow and we're in, we're in a cash cow season and we just need this to sort of play out. And we got 10 or 20 year run to just reap the rewards of what happened in the past. And we just need a maintainer. I am not your guy. That is a, not a good fit for me. But if you're rapidly trying to grow or you're trying to come out of some big transition, something really good or something really bad, then that's where my skill set is a better match. Oh, tell us a little bit more. I was recently talking to a lady called Jessica Pronson. And we were talking about transitioning um, quite, quite a lot. Um, would love to hear about your view on transitioning on change overall and what excites you about it and what are the skills that you need? Well, I think it comes down, a lot of it is just organization. Everybody has these ideas and these dreams and maybe even some recognition of some change needs to happen or the changes happened to you. The cost, the change happened uh, maybe against your will or you have decided to make this change. So a lot of it is just having some organizational skills and being a good program manager, being able to identify a schedule and schedule variances and costs necessary or investments necessary to achieve the financial results and then variances to that. And then just reporting on it and supporting the people necessary. So if you're going to do that, you got to identify what needs to get done, who's going to do it, how much money they need. And when those things don't happen? Well, why didn't they happen? Was the schedule impossible? Are there external internal forces? Do you need more resources, less resources? Do you need people to move around? It's kind of like playing chess or it's like playing risk if you ever played board games. And I just really like that. I think it's fun resource allocation and I'm a super organized person. I'm very detail oriented. That's why I'm an accountant. And so that's a helpful skill. A lot of people are idea people, not execution, or they are pretty good at identifying the big rocks, but not all the details necessary to make it really work. And so you could buy the bricks, but I'll be the mortar. And that is helpful. I can be a good yin to a yang. You know, there's a Julie CEO out there and she's like, oh, I got the bricks, but I need the mortar. You need to hire somebody like uh, a Robert Bendetti. So, so can you talk a little bit more about how, what it looks like in practice, in everyday reality? Because you are the CFO, you go through transition, you may even encourage some sort of a significant change. Now, you are the mortar, fantastic. But how do you make sure that your team is coming with you, that they feel equally positively challenged as well as excited about this transition? I'd back up because I think a better scenario that has a, a more likely to succeed is that the CEO has the vision for change. The tone needs to be coming from the top. They have a passion for a particular change. And uh, you know, in our example here, Julie has a vision that she has developed or the board hired her to execute. And so she needs resources then to, to execute it, operations and finance and sales. And, and I can, I or other CFOs can bring to bear our skills, uh, being detail oriented and great or with organization and program management. We can bring ourselves along as an, a trusted advisor internally to execute on these things. So it's a little nuance, a little difference. Uh, the CFO can come up with these ideas. And yes, I, I pitch ideas for transformation. Yes. But if it's 
truly company-wide transformation, that passion needs to come from the CEO. And then you are helping her execute that vision. I think that that's a, will help with the greater potential for success. So just pause there. And then how to do it, I think, is helping her and the organization understand not only all the resources necessary, the financial resources, the time resources, people, processes, technology, but also then let's not just assume we have all the answers in this perfect plan to execute. Let's seek the input of others and then have others understand the people are going to have to execute this. So we have to understand the people side of change. And there's a bunch of different change management philosophies and practices, and I love them all. But I, I really like ProSci, their emphasis around the people side of change, which is often forgotten. And so I, that's a particular additional tool in my tool belt, is uh, all the things a normal accountant has as an internal consultant. But I like to have a little ProSci tool, a little people side of change tool in my tool belt, because I think it helps me execute, helps me support these change management projects. So tell us a little bit more about it. The tool well, and what you apply. In yeah, particular. so I'll tell I'll tell it in a story because uh, it's you know I, I don't work for them and I, I you, you know you can't use like slash Robert to get a discount or something like that. So I'll just <sighs> tell it in a personal story. So I do like to run, uh, but I I haven't always done that. Uh, about five years ago, I was sixty five pounds heavier than I currently am now, and so I was just a full figured young man. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's good on you if you are. But for me, it just caused a lot of knee problems, back problems because of the type of food I was eating, uh, the just poor nutrition. My head hurt all the time. And I was taking a thousand milligrams of some sort of Tylenol, Advil, something just to deal with the headaches. I had trouble sleeping. And so if I think about, I knew a change need to happen in theory but I just couldn't make myself. I just wasn't doing anything. And if I use this ProSci model as an example, ProSci has this ADCAR, A-D-K-A-R, and A stands for awareness. I was very aware that I needed to do something. I was a bigger guy. And it seemed like the longer I went, the bigger I got. A marriage was very good to me. And my wife's an excellent cook. Everything's very delicious. And I could not push my plate away. But I was aware I needed to do something, but I wasn't doing anything. My desire was low. That's the next. Ad car is A, D. D for desire. Desire desire was low to do anything. I had no desire to do anything. Knowledge. I actually was pretty knowledgeable about fitness and nutrition. I loved watching fitness videos. Like I put a tape in and watch it. I wouldn't actually work out. But like I would totally watch an exercise video. I was like, dang, that guy looks good. Oh man. Oh, it'd be cool to have an ab. I don't know about six abs, but just like one ab what? on my left side. <laughs> Woo. Dang. That would be cool. So I was very knowledgeable about nutrition and about exercise. I just didn't do anything. Ability. I got all my legs and arms and fingers and toes. I'm a I'm, I'm able. And reinforcement, man, reinforcement strong. The world will tell you that you're a, a full-figured young man. And so the refer- so I needed to in this ad car model. What was the lowest? The lowest was desire. I didn't have an internal spark. My best friend, bigger guy like me, after college gained some weight. He calls me from the hospital, triple bypass surgery on the heart, had a heart attack. Luckily is okay. Luckily didn't have a stroke. But he was telling me about the speech he got from the doctor, and all. I went to go visit him, and the doctor was telling me like he got lucky and. You know, you might not die from a heart attack. You could have had a stroke. And then this is what would have happened if you had a stroke. 
And I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm 40 years old. Like I won't just die. I could impair myself and just, I could have a stroke and then I could not have, I was like, oh my God, my desire went skyrocketing. And I was like, oh my God, I've got to do something. And so in this ad car model, now everything all was high awareness, high desire, knowledge, ability, reinforcement was all high. And so I saw some movement. I knew, okay, what do I, what do I need to do to lose weight? I'll go, all right, well, I want to do this forever. So I'm going to eat a little bit less, just a little bit less. And if I used to have a large fry with my fish and chips, I'd have a small fry. If I used to have a large Coca-Cola, now I have a small Coca-Cola. You used to have two ketchups. I have one ketchup, had two beers with the guys. Now I have one beer with the guy, nothing crazy. I didn't give up I stopped doing anything. I just slightly less every week, a small change. I could change forever. And I just slowly improved. And I lost one pound a week for 65 weeks. And I lost 65 pounds and I've kept it off for the past three or four years. And then now that I am thinner my back doesn't hurt and my knees don't hurt and my head doesn't hurt. And I'm not carrying around a 65 pound backpack. Well, now I feel like doing something. I was like, Oh, I like tennis. I like surfing. I like jogging. I'll see if I can jog a 5k. So I did a five, a 10, a half, a full marathon. Then I started doing longer things. And it was just, I, where was my weakness in the ad car model? For me, it was desire for somebody else. Maybe it's that they are not aware that they are causing themselves serious medical conditions for being bigger. I'm not saying you're not beautiful. You're beautiful, but you can be beautiful and unhealthy. And I was unhealthy. I'm, I don't think I was beautiful. I was, I was just unhealthy. And so I needed to be healthier. And that's what I promote to people is if, if this is helpful, just try to make a really small change, a baby step, something now that you could do forever. And just a really small change can have a dramatic impact. Just a 1%. If you improved anything about yourself, 1% in 72 days, you'd be a brand new person. Yeah. because of compounding interest. It's an accounting job. Yeah, I was just about to say that, actually. Yeah, thank you so much for highlighting the compounding effect here as well. And you know what? What you just so beautifully described applies to every area of our life, you know, and uh, it breaks it down so beautifully and uh, really kind of shows the reality right in our face. Um, thank you for bringing some humor into this example as well. I was actually visualizing my other half who currently, I think, watches a YouTube video about um, healthy fats and how to burn more fat, <laughs> sitting or lying on the couch and probably taking a lot of sugar. And I'm not quite sure. So it made me giggle slightly. But the desire, you know, how can we trigger this desire? What's truly, truly important to us? What makes us realize the change we could achieve and how it benefits us, but our environment as well, family in your case, for example, right? I think it's very hard externally. You know, I can't make one of some of my other guy friends uh, improve in an area. Maybe they even say they want to improve in. It's got to come from within. You know, if you're struggling with an addiction or you're not achieving some personal or professional goals you have, you need to look at yourself and see where am I lacking? Maybe you don't have the knowledge to achieve the personal or professional goals that you need. Well, get them. Start listening to podcasts, get a coach, get some training, fill in the gap. Wherever you're lowest on this model, move it up. And it doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be an overnight. Just grind. Just grind through it 1%, a half a percent, 0.1%. And in the future, you will be better than the present you. 
you mentioned quite a, this beautiful story about your own development, your own learning journey to health, really, and well-being. You also mentioned that you are not focusing on being perfect and the perfect leader. And I would add to it, is that even possible, right? You highlight the need for excellence here as well. And you talked about ego and how to remove the ego and to be in a position where you say, I believe in the resourcefulness of other people and their knowledge and their ideas. And I can actually achieve more by focusing on those areas and those skills. Given that you learn so much on a day-to-day basis and you listen to so many podcasts and you are aware of all the external input that offers you more learning. What are areas where you say, oh, my view has actually changed on certain topics or on my approach as a leader? Anything where you say, no, if I look back, yes, I have a different view on it. Happy to raise my hand to say, look, might have been wrong in the past. Things change. What are those areas? The number one in the past two years is I have gone a complete flip-flop from a persecutor of the idea of people working remote or hybrid or flex schedules to now a huge promoter. If you'd have caught me two and a half years ago, I have said at companies that people who want to work remote or flex schedules, they just don't care about their career, that they just want to, they're lazy, they're bums, and We're never going to be able to keep track of them. How are we going to know what they're doing? That no, no way. And everywhere I've ever worked, I've always been against starting or allowing or expanding any sort of remote flex or hybrid. And now I'm the total opposite. You know, this was a terrible, horrible pandemic that impacted all of us so directly to our families. We all have families that were dramatically impacted by this. But I think it did teach us that we can do different things than we thought. And one of those professional applications is that we allowed people to work remote. I started working remote, not at first for two weeks. I was still going in the office. I was by myself. It was the roads were clear and I was still driving into the office because you have to go in the office (laughs) to work. And uh, then one day I stayed home and I've never been back. And now I just think offices are so dumb, so stupid, so expensive. Not Now, if you make widgets and the widget maker is in Wales or Kansas, you got to be in Wales or Kansas to make the widgets. But if you do something that you could be in a van down by the river or you could be in the office or you could be on the beach, I don't care at all where you are as long as you get your work done. And something that I've learned is that people are super efficient. People are more responsive when they work remote. They work, uh, maybe they start a little later and they work uh, later. They run off to go see their kids' school program, then they come back and they work late. Everyone's getting all their work done and they're more engaged because they, they love this flexibility. And so where able and where I think it's applicable, I just think that remote, flexible, and hybrid work is such a tool, such a weapon during this time of scarcity of good people yeah. that if you you your company allows this, uh, that I think you have a huge advantage. And just two weeks ago, we hired someone in a state I would have never even looked because I don't have an office there. And we found a perfect person in the middle of nowhere because they moved there. And they're happy and super engaged to have the job. We're ecstatic to have them. And it's only possible because now you can work from wherever. I don't care. I don't care where you work. 
And I, uh, so that's, that, that's a, a light bulb moment for me. Instead of having to try to find people where I have offices and only look in six zip codes, now I can look all over America, look all over the world to hire people. I think it's a huge advantage for companies. If you can do it, if you can pull that off, I think it's a huge advantage. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think so too. However, I also hear from quite a few people in businesses, leaders, non-leaders, who are relieved to go back to the office at least a few days a month um, because of the sense of connection, belonging, actually, you know, having those face-to-face conversations that uh, are valuable as well. I'm not saying you cannot have them uh, when you work remotely. Don't get me wrong. But for some people, it's just really important to have this face-to-face contact too. Yeah, it, and that's what it is about the option. It's all, yeah. right? That that some people, oh, I've got uh, three roommates or I got a lo- loud dog. Or we got people who during the summer, they come into work because their college kids are back. And uh, the internet is unbelievably sl- slow because they're streaming seven devices a piece. So yeah, flexibility. It's like whatever works for you. Yeah. Sometimes coming in the office, sometimes we're working flexibly. I think that there's a real benefit. I know for me, it allows me to work more and harder and more focused. I have fewer distractions. If somebody needs to me to be on a meeting, I can be there immediately. I don't have to fly anywhere. I'm there right away. If I host a meeting, there are tools I can use the virtual whiteboard to document. Everybody gets to see. It's easy to see. People have vision problems. They can't read your handwriting, not on a whiteboard. They can make it as big as they possibly want. They can see it because it's typed. And then I can I can get alliance within the meeting that, yep, that's what we're all agreeing to. And then I can immediately convert that to tasks and reminders and, and notes. And it's a huge efficiency tool. And then for me personally, another thing that I want to add is, whereas I, I kind of talk pretty loud and I can't help myself sometimes, I just get excited is that on a, a video call, I am more aware of how much I'm talking in a meeting. And I'm like, wow, I have been talking a lot. I need to shut up. I haven't seen Julie or Jessica or Latasha talk once. And I could, if I, maybe, maybe I just need to ask them. So I get more feedback from people or some people, they don't like to be asked, but they'll chat a question in the chat box their feedback or a question. That's how they're more comfortable. Or they raise their hand and uh, using the little tool that says, raise my hand. And so I feel that uh, remote work and this video technology efficiency tool, I also think it is way more inclusive uh, to, to allow remote and hybrid work. And these video calls, you get more people in meetings because you don't have to sit around a conference room and eat lunch. You get more people and then more people giving feedback and more inclusive feedback because of these tools. Yeah, it, uh, it works for all sort of sort of personality types, doesn't it? What I would add to it is, and I'm pretty sure you do that, that it needs a bit of a warm up, warming up period um, just to establish some uh, ground rules sounds very formal. Don't mean it like that, but just a bit of contracting around. Okay, how are we handling this new world, this hybrid world, so that people know about it and uh, feel comfortable with it, and then it can be hugely powerful. And you mentioned you had the chance to hire this fantastic talent in a different state that you wouldn't have looked at beforehand. Not the person necessarily, the state. The question here that came up for me was: How do you, in general, recruit your? super talented team because one piece of the puzzle of success is obviously that there is a great leader who has a deep care about his team. 
or her team. But the other piece is that you have actual talent on your team and also personality types that work, people who want to do a good job. What do you pay attention to, for example, when hiring the people? Yeah, we have an awesome recruiting team. They really are fantastic. And as a professional services firm, uh, human resources is always important. But in particular, at a professional service firm, recruiting is the sharp end of the spear because the faster they can find awesome people, the faster we can put them to work. And then I can start charging the customer for their labor and create revenue. So uh, luckily, we just have a really awesome team that using by all means of technology processes and systems in their experience, they are fantastic at just finding talent. So it's just some of the basic stuff of recruiting and advertising, but they in particular just do a really good job of uh, being mindful and intentful of finding the best talent, not just a talent, not just somebody or the first person to apply, but the best person. So they, we got a great team. I think that's important is to value the HR team, but then, you know, equip them to make really fast decisions and get the best people on board. And then uh, for my department, one thing I like to do is I like to talk to everybody before they are hired. I'm not interviewing them. I'm not, I'm not part of the process to see who gets to the, to the end, but just before somebody starts, uh, before they get offered the job, I want to talk to them because I, I want to introduce myself. I also want to share like some insights on the job, like what they're actually applying for. Cause like you, we have one department that is unbelievably busy and like at every company, there's one department, maybe at your company, it's it or it's HR or it's accounting or it's contracts or it's marketing. There's just one department that's just constantly overworked and understaffed. And they're just, it's very busy and very hard. And then there's a department that's like not. Well, if you apply for the super busy department, I want to share with you, hey, Kathleen, I just want to give you a heads up that you are applying for the a job in the hardest department at lifecycle engineering, most visible, sharpened, top of the spear, super critical, super visible, very busy. So I just want to make sure you understand what you are applying for. So you are not surprised. You know, every place you've worked, there's probably like a, a, a place, there's some departments, they just seem to like coast and chill. And then there was, there was like one department that were like super busy. You've applied for a job in the super busy place. Right? So I, I like to have that kind of conversation. So if somebody just goes, oh, okay, I don't want it. I don't want this job. Thanks. Bye. Mm -hmm. Or they could be like, Ooh, that excites me. That sounds fantastic. I like being in a high visible role and working a lot because not working a lot is boring. And I get, you know, I get bored easily. And I, I'm like, okay, cool, cool. Good to hear. Cause that's what you've applied for, you know, or I like to give a little bit of insight or, and answer questions. Hey, Kathleen, you've just been through three interviews. It's been a whirlwind of four days. You know, like what questions do you have? What, what's something you wish you had asked or hoped you could ask something that somebody said that doesn't make any sense. And I like to have that kind of conversation. And I, I think that that you can like build a rapport really early on. And then a 1% reason I'm doing it is because I work at a, I, my, the company that I work at has under a thousand employees. So I couldn't do this if I worked at a company that had, and I'm, by the way, I'm, only talking about the corporate group. So there's only like, you know, we're talking about uh, 50, 60 people, not 10,000 people. Yeah. All right. You know, I do reserve the right once every 10 years after this conversation to call and say, okay, I talked to Kathleen, man, have you, uh, 
Have you ever seen Office Space, Kathleen, by the way? Office Space? Yeah, off the movie Office Space? No. Okay. Well, this I'm glad I asked. So there is a movie in the United States about working in an office and there's this crazy person who has a red stapler. And so my freight, I'm trying to look out for the crazy person. And you know, like once every 10 years, you have a, you talk to somebody and you realize, oh, wow, this person might be like dangerous or bad. And they've been pulling the wool over people's eyes. And I don't think this is a good fit for our organization. There's something here that needs more review. And so I do reserve the right for that. Hey, hiring manager, hey, human resources, I think maybe this candidate, there may be something we need to relook at because of some bad, very bad personality traits that would be disruptive or toxic for our organization. You know, that's once every 10 years is something like that mainly, but that, that I think is helpful. Be engaged in the hiring process uh, as just a resource to, the, uh, to these new people who might be coming aboard uh, and establish a relationship even before they accept. So what I've heard is you definitely need people who are motivated, who like to have a challenge, fast paced environments are something that motivates them and being really busy as well. Anything else you would add qualities of your team? I think if you're going to be in a corporate service role, if you kind of have a, if you will allow things to kind of roll off your back, if you're calm, flexible, if you have a servant leadership kind of mindset, I think that's helpful is that we are internal consultants. So if you work in IT or contracts or accounting, finance, human resources for a company, you've got one client, one company you work for, but it's a client. And just like if we were consultants and so we got to keep these clients happy. I have, I have one client, life cycle engineering. I got to try to come to work. I don't always do it but I got to try to come to work. Okay. This is my customer. I got to support this customer. I got to try to be a servant leader to these people. I need to be calm. I need to be relaxed. I need to let some things kind of just roll off my shoulder. And I think that's good for anybody in the corporate service group to think of our interactions with people like, okay, this is a client and I'm trying to help them solve their problem. Thank you so, so much. I think we could talk for another hour probably. However, um, yeah, loads of topics to think about, to mull over, loads of experiences you have shared very openly. Um, So thank you so much for being so generous with your knowledge, experience, and time as well, Robert. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I very much enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thank you. And before we let you go, do share with the audience where people can find you. Obviously on LinkedIn. From what yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah. Wouldn't it be funny if I said, well, here's my Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, whatever. Yeah. TikTok. No, I'm, I'm not on anything. Yeah. the uh, That's it. LinkedIn. I think I'm the only bald CFO, Robert Bendetti. So anybody who wants to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'd love to connect. And just don't post the meme about the CFO. Uh, the, the, yeah. Don't do that, please. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you uh, to all of you out there for listening again to the show. Please do leave your feedback with us. Contact Robert, connect with him. Do share your experiences. He loves a challenge. So challenge him on some of his views, perhaps as well. Um, It was a pleasure for me to talk to you. You all take good care and speak to you again very soon. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or on my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. 
I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you and how you're enjoying the show in general. Please do leave your review on iTunes as well. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Bye.